about five years ago, some pastors and some other folks got together with the idea to start a camp, summer camp for our teenage kids and help train and prepare them for going to university and going to uh, out into the world as productive adults, understanding the basic foundation of the faith and understanding the significance of consistent Bible study in their lives. And that was implemented as Camp Arete. Jeff was instrumental in that. And it's been uh, a joy for me to watch Jeff as he's been uh, maturing spiritually over the last number of years. I've known Jeff for probably over 20 years. But in the last few years, he has really stepped to the plate. This is a real, he's a real pattern and model for what should be taking place again and again in the lives of believers in a local church, taking initiative, taking direction in different ministries. Because of what he did with Camp Arete, and he's the director for Camp Arete, it's really given him an opportunity to visit a lot of other uh, doctrinal churches, build further relationships with pastors. I always knew Jeff was weird because, you know, 10 years ago he came up, or 12 years ago almost, came up to Connecticut, and he said, you know, most of my friends are pastors. Right then, you know, somebody's not quite right. <laughs> but he is, uh, he's gotten involved now with DM2 and the last couple of years. He helped teach at the DM2 conference here a month ago, uh, helped teaching up at Preston City Bible Church back in the spring, and he's going with Jim Myers and some others to conduct a DM2 conference down in Brazil, and they're leaving Tuesday, right? And so I wanted him to just give a briefing to the congregation this morning about what they're going to be doing so that we can be in prayer for them during the time that they're gone, and then he'll give a report also when he gets back. So, Jeff, turn the mic. Yeah, make sure the mic's on for him. So um, I'm not so sure about being weird, but uh, it, it is true that I, I have a lot of friends that are pastors, and I went up to uh, visit Robbie uh, just before he came down here. I got introduced to his ministry from uh, from a really good friend as I left my last church. And so I went up to interview him, and uh, we spent the weekend together. I think Pam was gone, and we... Uh, I think on Sunday when he broke out the fillets and adult beverages, I was like, well, this guy's pretty cool. <laughs> but uh, he's um, he talked a little bit about uh, growing uh, spiritually, and, and I think really uh, the uh, the big credit there goes to uh, Robbie's teaching. It's had a big impact in my life, and uh, it's really brought around some of the uh, – events that have occurred with camp and with DM2. So, uh, Robbie, thank you very much. Appreciate that. The um, On this uh, trip to uh, Brazil, the uh, Robbie mentioned that we're going down there with Jim. And uh, Jim's been there for about 10 years. And uh, he's I, I, I think he goes down there once, once a year for about two weeks. And so what DM2 is hoping to do is to uh, partner with Jim and really kind of dovetail into what, you know, the the groundwork that he's already laid there. And what, what DM2 kind of brings to the table is um, they have about 20 curriculums. Uh, we just did one here recently, The Life of Christ. Uh, we, uh, we're going to do Romans 1 through 8 down there. Um, and uh, the idea with DM2 is you adopt a country – uh, for 10 years, and you commit to go there uh, twice a year. 
And we're not at the adoption stage with Brazil. This is really kind of a trip where we're feeling out how things will work with Jim, uh, how things will work with the folks there on the ground. So if uh, if you guys are looking for prayer, um, that that is one thing that uh, – that we do want to pray about is that all this works together well. It, it seems like the way things have come together, it certainly seems like there's going to be some opportunities there. And um, the other thing that uh, that I'd like to ask for you guys to pray about is is this concept of replication. And uh, it is one of the focuses of uh, DM2, and one of the things that I really appreciate about, appreciate about it is it, it really, uh, the, the thrust of the ministry is to uh, turn these curriculums over to local believers, uh, local pastors, uh, so that they can go out and teach. And, and so um, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, missions, the focus is on the missionary co- continuing to come back, and, and that's, you know, that's certainly appropriate and fine. But with DM2, it's a little different. The focus is really to uh, push, uh, push the teaching down to the local pastors and uh, believers. And uh, so Natal is the city that we're visiting. We're kind of viewing that as our beachhead. And uh, I've got uh, Doug Karn is, is interested in, in speaking of replication. Doug's talked to me a little bit about coming. It didn't, the logistics didn't work out this time, but, uh, but next time uh, I'm pretty sure he'll be there if there is a second time. And um, and you guys will get a chance to see him teach in January here at church. So, speaking of replication, <laughs> but um, and and then I think the third thing about uh, on the, as far as prayer goes, just um, if you guys could really focus on uh, all the logistics it takes to get down there. It's a real challenge with uh, visas and getting through customs. Um, we've got uh, church families that are hosting us there that you know they don't know us, we don't know them. Uh, we're all supposed to meet at the airport, and I think I fly in to Natal at 2, and we start teaching at 3. So uh, if you guys could be praying about that. So thank you very much, and Robbie, thank you for all your teaching. All right. Um, we need to be in pr- prayer for uh, all those guys, and if I had a schedule, I'll tell you how it would work with me. If I had a schedule where I was flying in at 2 and was going to teach at 3, I would be actually flying it at 5, and whatever happened the rest of the day would be rescheduled. That's how it works when you get involved with the angelic conflict. So we need to make sure that we pray that their schedule, which seems very tight, actually works. That's why I go places early, is to make sure that that things like that uh, work out. So we need to be in prayer for them and pray for uh, Jim Myers as well. I, I emailed back and forth with Jim yesterday. He'll be leaving, I think, today or tomorrow to go to Brazil. It's a little bit longer flight for him. And just pray for, for their health and their strength and also continue to pray for his ministry over there. Uh, before we get into the Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance on our time in his Word. Father, we're thankful for the way you've worked in the life of Jeff and, and many others, uh, and Doug Karn as well, and his desire to go down and help out. And Father, we see that this is an example to each of us, an example to the congregation of how uh, maturity should work in the lives of believers. As we grow and as we mature, we see opportunities to minister, and we ask the question, how can I serve? What can I do? And you open doors and opportunities for us. And, Father, it's really exciting to watch uh, guys like this get involved and to see this opportunity developing 
and uh, in Brazil and through DM2. We continue to pray for Brett uh, Nasworth as he has to uh, recover from his uh, malaria and that you will give him uh, strength uh, in, in the coming days and he can uh, fully recover from his bout with malaria. Father, we pray for us now as we study your word that you'd help us to understand it more fully, more precisely, and that the implications of what we study will be brought home to us by God the Holy Spirit, realizing that that the implications of each of these events calls upon the, the witnesses of the original events as well as all who read about them down through the ages to respond in terms of their uh, their, their life, their responsibilities, and their orientation and to your authority and dependence upon your authority. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 9. While we're turning there, I just want to give the congregation a brief update on what is going on with this uh, situation with the, with the mayor in Houston. And we need to think through this biblically. That's the only reason I'm bringing this up. I don't want this to be a hobby horse or something that defines this ministry. But we live in an era today when the other side, whatever that is, whoever that is, is targeting Christianity specifically. Because Christianity, especially biblical Christianity, stands for a specific set of absolute norms and standards. And what we've seen for 30 or 40 years, if you've been paying attention, and most of you have, is that there has been a foundation laid that has really eroded the Judeo-Christian edifice and foundation of this nation and this culture, so that what we're seeing today is a rotten structure, a rotten structure because this, this has happened very subtly and behind the scenes for 40 years, and now it's become much more overt. We're hearing things like this. Even 10 years ago, no mayor in this country would have done what this mayor did. But, but this mayor's done it. Now, what's happened as a result of this, she may get a lot of blowback and she's gotten a lot of negative press and a lot of reaction, but it's opened a door to something that never would have been opened before. And so that, that is going to have ramifications down, down the road. Next time it's going to be a little easier. And the time after that, it's going to be a little easier. Now, we have to be careful how we read and understand what's being reported in the press because it's not always accurate. Who would have thought? And you have people, for example, I didn't read it. I only heard it by hearsay because I don't read this particular columnist in the Houston Chronicle in order to live longer and minister better. I didn't want to have a stroke this morning, so I don't read Lisa Falkenberg's column, but she got everything wrong, which she usually does. And unfortunately, this is an example of how when you have suppressed truth and unrighteousness and you buy into a non-biblical worldview, you can't properly interpret reality. You all, it always goes through your, your pagan grid, and then that gets re, re, reoriented and redefined, and what you think you see is not what's really there anymore because you, you just can't do it. And so, but she just represents a host of people. She doesn't understand, neither do many of the other people in the press, that what is going on here is part of the First Amendment. That's really the issue. The issue is not about the hero ordinance right now. I want to say something about that in a minute. But it's not about that. It is about the freedom we have as Americans to express our opinions at the poll. 
And the occasion for this is that HERO ordinance, which was passed by the city council. But once they passed it, there is a provision in the uh, in the city charter for redress if the citizens of Houston do not believe that the that the uh, government of Houston, the city council, has done something correct, and they can recall that vote and take it to the people in terms of a referendum. And there are specific guidelines given in the city charter for how that referendum is supposed to be conducted. And what we are, what, what we, what the group that has brought the lawsuit against the city is saying is that the city violated the city charter that the mayor and the city attorney violated the city charter, and in, and by doing so, they are seeking to take away from the citizens of Houston the right to vote on this issue. And this is why this is a voting issue. It is not related to anyone's view of the uh, homosexual, lesbian, gay, transgender issue. It is about the right of the citizens of Houston to have their say. And we need to keep that focused on that because the attempt from the other side is going to be to cast all these conservatives. In, number one, they're going to make this a conservative Christian issue. You'll read that in the paper. This does not, and I think our side has made a mistake strategically in letting that stand because there are Orthodox Jews and Muslims and many atheists and secularists who do not believe that this is right either. They understand what the real problem is in this, this, uh, in this kind of uh, le- legislation. And let me give you one example. I learned about this yesterday in talking to somebody in the congregation, that if you are working for the government and if you're involved in dealing with the public and you're working for the federal government and somebody comes in to deal with you, whatever it may be, whether it's in a hospital environment like the VA or it may be in a- other, other circumstances, and this person believes that they, even though they're biologically a male, if they believe they're a woman, then you're required by federal government policy to refer to them by a feminine pronoun. And you can be written up and can possibly lose your job if you refer to the person in terms of their biological sex instead of their psychological sex. Now, that's the, you know, people talk about this hero ordinance as, as the bathroom ordinance and the bathroom bill. And that's what gets all the play. But tell, trust me. The evils of having somebody who is one sex going into the other sex's bathroom and whatever perversion or perverted motivation they have is nothing compared to the real insidious danger of this ordinance. Because once this gets passed into law, then it becomes a legal foundation for the city government to put pressure on employers to have the same kind of policies that are being enforced by federal agencies, and and nobody's challenging these kinds of things. And where this impacts you as an individual believer is is if you're working in this kind of environment and you were told that somebody comes in that you have to deal with as a customer or patient or some other situation like that, and they are transgender and they look like a male but they think they're a female, and if you are forced by policy to refer to them by a feminine pronoun, then and you always have to refer to them as she, then what happens is that is breaking down your conscience. And before long, you don't think there's anything strange with calling this male transvestite a she. And it, it causes your values to be distorted so that the reality now is... 
and I hate to put this to you, but we've already lost this battle. We need to fight the battle, but we have lost it. If you're under 25, if you're an evangelical Christian under 25 in this country, you probably think that it's okay to have same-sex marriage. That is the predominant view among, not among non-church people, but among evangelicals under the age of 25 because they're not, they haven't been taught and because they've been so pressured already by the agenda in the schools and in the culture at large that if you think that it's wrong, then somehow you're prejudiced, you're biased, and you're, you're out of touch and you're really evil if you have that kind of prejudice and bias. Sadly, there are Christians who think that committing a sin like homosexuality is some sort of super sin. You lose your salvation. The reality in the Bible is that that sins, whether it's homosexuality or adultery or fornication or gossip or vindictiveness, seeking revenge, all of these sins are all sins against God. And God has paid the penalty for those sins, and that's the grace message that we should be known for. But we recognize that even though all sins are are violations of God's standards, that some sins have greater consequences and ramifications in the culture at large than other sins. And that when you approve of these sins and they are no longer considered to be, uh, you know, socially problematic are socially prohibited, then it destroys the foundational institutions that give stability to a culture and to a society. And so when you have certain sins, uh, adultery, fornication, uh, same-sex marriage, homosexuality, sodomy, you have these, these sins. If they become approved, then it destroys the foundation of marriage and it destroys the foundation of family. And they, these are the divine institutions God has established for the stability of the human race and the perpetuation of the human race. And once that breaks down, then the culture breaks down. So what we're seeing is a government and a culture, powers that be, whether they're Democrat or Republican, who are pushing an agenda that doesn't protect the citizenry but harms the citizenry, and they don't even understand that. But it plays itself out in numerous other policies. You can't close the borders and protect the nation because you don't understand the importance that your role is to protect the people from evil. So you not only let terrorists cross the borders, you may let serious diseases come across the borders and many other things. And so all of a sudden, instead of treating evil as evil and uh, and and and, and uh, uh, impacting that, what you end up with is you're calling good evil. Those who oppose your policies become identified as the enemy, and so you want to shut them down. And this, this, these subpoenas, again and again, they keep saying, well, our language was too broad. And what has happened, pay attention, because in the language they wanted all sermons and speeches and emails and iChats and any form of communication. Now they said, oh, we don't want to infringe on religious liberty. We don't want to infringe on any, we don't want to get into the religious part. We just need the part that ta- where any pastor communicates anything about how to fill out these petitions. So we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna correct ourselves. We're gonna take the word sermon out. Now, my question is, and your question should be, is there a legal definition of sermon that distinguishes it from a speech? Theologians and pastors can't even define the difference. 
So, so do we have a law that gives a technical legal definition to sermon versus a speech? This is just, just, this is just smoke and mirrors. This, this is a head fake. And nothing has changed. What they really want to do is intimidate the pulpit, to intimidate Christians that we can't take our biblical values and on that basis address the serious issues that face our culture because they don't want anybody coming along that will say that something that is being done in terms of social policy is wrong or evil or using that horrible S-word, sin. And so that's, that's the problem. We are in a war. And we need to take a stand, but we need to make sure that we deal with whoever's on the other side in a gracious manner, which means we may be taken advantage of. But we have to stand our ground and not allow them uh, to gain any ground on in, in this issue or any other issue. So there needs to be a lot of prayer for this and a lot of, lot of insight. Now, some people think if Christians were doing it right, they wouldn't face any opposition. That's not true, and we'll see that in our text today. Jesus did everything right, and yet what we see at the end of this chapter is that that the opposition is becoming more stabilized. We've already seen the hint of opposition in some of these other miracles, but now it becomes more overt by the end of this particular set of miracles. So what we're seeing here in the last set of three miracles we began this the, looking at the last three last last time in Matthew 9:18 and in that situation Jesus was restoring health and life uh to the uh, health to the woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years life to Jairus's daughter who had died and Jesus brought her back to life in the last two miracles uh, he's going to restore sight to two blind men and then he will restore speech to a man who is mute, who cannot speak because of demon possession. So this demon is not like the demons that were cast out of the uh, the two gathering demoniacs back in Matthew 8, uh, 28 and following, who spoke, these do, n- these do not speak. Now, this is important to understand this breakdown here, these miracles of restoration. This is an extremely powerful claim by, by, that Matthew is making here that Jesus, by virtue of these last three miracles, is making a claim to be the one and only Messiah of Israel. In that first one, which we looked at last time, Jesus restores health to the hemorrhaging woman and life to Jairus' daughter. The fact that she has died and Jesus brings her back to life is one of the unique signs that the rabbis expected the Messiah to do. Only the Messiah could bring someone back to life once they were dead. And so this is an undeniable sign that he is the Messiah. If you remember when we began this section back in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, when Jesus healed the leper, the very first example that Matthew gave was an example of Jesus healing a a leper, and and the healing of a leper was considered by the... um, by the rabbis to be one of those unique and distinct miracles that only the Messiah could perform. So now when Jesus gets, I mean, when Matthew gets to his, his last three examples, each of these fits that category of a unique, distinct miracle that only the Messiah could perform. 
In the second miracle that we're looking, uh, going to look at this morning, where Jesus restores sight to two blind men, that was another miracle. Only the Messiah would be able to give sight to someone who was blind. And then the last one that we see here, and both of these are very short, is Jesus restores speech to a demon-possessed man. And one of the reasons this is a, a something distinctive to the Messiah is because in Jewish thought, <clears throat> there were many people who uh, the rabbis claimed they had exorcists. They're called exorcists. That word exorkizo in the Greek is never used of anything Jesus or the disciples did. It's always the word cast out. So the Bible makes it very clear that, that pagans and magic does one thing, exorcism. But biblically, biblically, what Jesus and the disciples do is to cast out a demon. So in the magical practice of the rabbis and the Jewish exorcists, one of the things they thought they needed to be able to do to gain control over an indwelling demon was to find out the name of the demon. And if you knew the demon's name and you called out the demon's name, then that would give you power over the demon. Now, that idea is not biblical, but there are many so-called Christian evangelists and healing evangelists today who make that same claim. And so when they go through their rigmarole in terms of casting out demons, they will engage uh, the alleged indwelling demon and want to know the name of that demon, then they gain power over that demon. But what makes this distinctive is that if the demon is mute, which means he doesn't talk, the old English was dumb, but that's not politically correct anymore, so we can't talk about the dumb demon. Although I like talking about dumb demons because it has a double entendre there. So we have this mute demon. Well, if the demon doesn't talk, then you can't find out the name of the demon. And if you don't know the name of the demon and you still cast the demon out, then that shows that the power that you have over the demon is a different power and a greater power than the power that the Jews are calling upon to exercise the demon. So this is what we see here is three distinctive miracles that are unique to messianic expectation. Now, why is that so important? Because in a couple of chapters, the Pharisees come along and say, why don't you show us a sign? Well, wait a minute. He, and, and just this group of miracles, of nine different miracles, four at least are miracles that are unique to the Messiah. So Jesus has given them plenty of signs. Now, we look at verse 27, and we read that when Jesus departed from there, from, from, uh, oh, excuse, yeah, from there, where's there? He's in Capernaum, remember? Here's our map. Capernaum is located upon the Great Trunk Highway. The Great Trunk Highway was this highway that started up, uh, came through Damascus, started up in the northwest, came down, crossed the shoulder of Mount Hermon, came down along the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, then proceeded south uh, through the Esdralon Valley and across to the Mediterranean. And so Capernaum's on a major trade route. And so that was Jesus' hometown, and he is living in Capernaum. He, we saw earlier that he had returned to Capernaum, and in the previous episode, he raises from the dead the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue there in Capernaum. So he's been in Jairus' home, and that's where he's coming from. 
So when Jesus departed from there, the there is Jairus' home. Two blind men follow him. So a crowd had followed Jesus to Jairus' house. They know that he's going to go in and raise her from the dead. These two blind men are with him, and they have already trusted in Jesus as Messiah. They believe in him. It's obvious from their faith. And so when Jesus comes out from having done that, they follow him, and they, they say, Son of David, have mercy upon us. Now, as we look at the setup here from Matthew, what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 35, 5, and 6, where Isaiah said of the Messiah that the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert." This is a prophecy related to the kingdom. This is what will characterize the kingdom when the Messiah comes, is that there will be healing of physical diseases, and there will be fruitfulness and productivity in the desert. And so Jesus is giving a foretaste of this, and Matthew is relating this to show, yes, indeed, he is the Messiah. He shows he's the Messiah by the words that he communicated in the Sermon on the Mount and now by the works that he performed in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. And this is driving somewhere because the the thrust that we'll see here in Matthew 8 and 9 is not only on the works that Jesus performed, but those works entailed a, a, a commandment to people. They, they entailed a commit, a, um, they in, entailed an obligation to his, uh, witnesses to respond to his claim to be the king in obedience and to become disciples. It was in essence a claim to be the Messiah and that the Pharisees should have accepted him. The religious leaders should have accepted him as the, as the uh, coming Messiah and followed him, but they rejected him. That's what comes into play here. And as a result of their rejection of, of him as Messiah, Jesus makes the claim in the last uh, concluding part of this to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest because the Pharisees should have been the, provided the leadership and they are false shepherds. And so he needs new new workers, and that's the disciples. So the, the, the other theme of these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, is the preparation of, the, of, of disciples and the demands upon disciples. And then he ends chapter 9 showing the need for these workers, and chapter 10 is where Matthew tells us of his call of the disciples, and then we have a, the second great discourse from Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, where he is giving instruction to the disciples as to what they should do in terms of their ministry. So that gives us the overview of how all these things fit together. The miracles demonstrate the credentials of the Messiah. And those credentials carry with them a a certain demand of those who witness them that if he is who he claims to be, then you need to respond in obedience to him and follow him. So... This is what has happened with the, with the, uh, these two blind men. They have responded to the, to Jesus' authority as demonstrated through his works. And they call him son of David. This is a 
messianic title. It shows that they clearly have accepted him as the Messiah of Israel, and they recognize his authority, and on the basis of his authority as the Messiah, because the Messiah is going to come and the Messiah is going to heal. Isaiah 35, 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. They know this, so they call upon him as the son of David to to uh, fulfill that and to heal them of their blindness and to restore their sight. Now, in these scriptures, we have several titles that relate to Jesus. Each of these titles indicates something about his uh, his purpose, something about his character, something about his his person. And when we look at these titles, uh, we need to recognize that that they are some of these are talking about his his derivation, his genealogy. He is a descendant of Adam. He's a descendant of Abraham. And the word "son of" in those. Uh, first three titles indicates that he is a descendant of Adam and Abraham and David. But within, within Hebrew, there is also an idiomatic use of the phrase son of. So that if you are, uh, if you exhibit certain characteristics in your life, then you would be described, for example, if you are active, then you would be called a son of action. If you are jealous, you might be called the son of jealousy. If you are uh, bitter, you might be called the son of bitterness. We have biblical examples of this. In 2 Kings 6.32, a murderer was called the son of a murderer. It's not saying that his father was a murderer, but that his life is characterized by murder. In 1 Samuel chapter 10.27 and Judges 20.13, there are different people called sons of Belial. The term Belial was a term for uh, for a term for for a demon, and so somebody who's called the son of Belial is somebody who's worthless, somebody who's evil, somebody who is wicked. So it was just an idiomatic uh, description. In Luke ten six, a person who was at peace was called a son of peace. It's not that his father was peace, but that he is characterized. By peace. In Acts 13.10, a person is called a son of the devil, meaning he's a devilish person. It was used to describe a sorcerer. And so the term son of a devil doesn't mean that he is uh, generated by the devil, but that he's characterized by demonic things. So we see that each of these titles expresses different things. Jesus is, uh, the first title, going back to the beginning, is Jesus is called the son of Adam in Luke 3.38, indicating his humanity. He is a descendant from Adam as we all are. And so the title son of Adam emphasizes his humanity. He is a man. And so this relates uh, Jesus back to the original creation covenant that he is going to be the second Adam who will have success where Adam failed. The second title that we find in the Gospels is that Jesus is called the son of Abraham. This is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here again, it means he is a descendant of Abraham, meaning he is fully Jewish, and that he is therefore related to the Abrahamic covenant. So the first title, son of Adam, relates him back to the creation covenant. The second 
relates him back to the Abrahamic covenant. The third title, the son of David, connects him to the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel chapter 7. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David that an heir of his, someone who came from his loins, would sit on the throne of Israel and rule forever and ever. That is called the Davidic covenant. It was an unconditional, irreversible covenant. And so the, it tells us that the Messiah would have to be a descendant of King David and would have to be qualified to, to take the throne of David and rule over Israel from Jerusalem. And so that term son of David is a strong messianic title. It's used a number of places and it is supported in various Old Testament passages such as Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, and in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33, the title son of David is applied specifically to Jesus. He's called the Son of God. Now, this emphasizes his deity. This is not a term of derivation. It's not saying that God the Father generated Jesus as as a human would generate a son. It is saying that he has the attributes of deity, and we find this title used numerous times of Jesus, specifically in Luke 3.38, and in 1.35, he's called the Son of God. He's also called the Son of Man. The Son of Man emphasizes his humanity. He is fully, truly human. And this is also a title that is given to the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7, 13. There Daniel saw in this vision that the Ancient of Days, at some point in the future, will give the kingdom to the Son of Man. And then the Son of Man will come to the earth and will establish his kingdom. That has not happened yet. That is yet future. It takes place at the end of the tribulation period when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth, and at that point he will establish his kingdom. So this is a forward-looking term, the Son of Man. Whenever you see that term, it always has that Daniel 7 significance in the background. Then he's called the son of Mary in Mark 6.3, emphasizes his humanity and his relationship to his mother Mary. And the term son of Joseph is used in John 1.45 as a reference to his adopted father. Again, this was used to indicate his, his humanity, his membership in that hu- human family. And so they call him the son of David. This tells us they understand he's a Messiah and they beg him to have mercy. And that's based on the biblical truth from Isaiah chapter 35. Then he looks at them. Verse 28, we read, when he'd come into the house, this was probably his own house. We're told that he lived there in Capernaum and lived in a house. Uh, The blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? So the focal point again is on their faith. Are they trusting him? Now, not as I pointed out before, several weeks ago when I did an in-depth study on the doctrine of healing, not everyone who is healed by Jesus expresses faith. There are many situations where either they, 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 they have faith and it's not mentioned in the scripture or it's clear they don't have faith, but Jesus heals them anyway out of his 
a deity in order to demonstrate his own credentials. But here he is emphasizing the importance of their faith. It's not based on any sort of magic or talisman or anything like that. They don't have the rabbit's foot. They didn't know the secret code or the secret handshake. It's all based upon the right belief. So he says, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. So in this case, they would both be believers, and they would both be trusting in him to heal them. That Those two conditions are not always true every time Jesus heals. So here he touches their eyes. He doesn't always do this the same way. In John chapter 9, he spat on the ground and made some, so like a clay poultice and put it on his eyes. So this does, does not show that there's a certain method. The issue is faith, not what he does. And he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. So he makes it clear that the issue is their faith. That's, and their eyes are immediately opened. And then Jesus warns them, see to it that no one knows this. Why does Jesus tell them not to tell anybody? This isn't the first time we've seen this. Jesus is sort of trying to keep a lid on things. He doesn't want the crowds to get too excited because he understands, as it's stated in John chapter, at the end of John chapter two, the crowds still have a political understanding of the Messiah from what they were taught uh, by the, by the Pharisees. They're thinking that we're going to have this Messiah who's going to free us and deliver us from Rome. So he's trying to keep a lid on things because he knows that his ministry has to, has to last a certain amount of time. And so it's a, it's a request here to limit that enthusiasm. But of course, he knows they're not going to do that and they did not do that. And as soon as he had, as soon as they had left Capernaum in verse 31, when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. And then we come to the second example here. Uh, the, the casting out of a demon from the mute man. In verse 32, as they went out, that is, they left. Jesus is in the house, and then there are others. We don't know who the they is who brought the demon-possessed man to him. We just know that someone else was lined up outside the house, and they brought to him a man who is mute and demon-possessed. The, the fact that he cannot talk is directly related to the fact that he is demon-possessed. Now, demon possession means that a an evil spirit, a fallen angel, has taken up residence inside the body of a person and is controlling their 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 mechanics, their physical body, and can even speak through them in some cases, or in this case could could not speak through them. Uh, there are different examples given in different situations, but the Bible is not giving us a complete list of all the things that demons can do, neither is it giving us a list of, uh, of symptoms that we can go to so that we can spot someone who's demon-possessed. There are people who are deaf who are not demon-possessed. There are people who are ill, who are paralyzed, who are psychotic, who are not demon-possessed. Those symptoms might indicate demon possession, and they do, but in most cases they don't. They just have to do with other other causes. So the fact that he is mute is not a symptom of all demon possession, but just of this particular instance. And so in a very brief account, Matthew tells us that they brought this mute man to Jesus, and in verse 33 
he tells us what happens afterwards. After, and New King James says when, but it should be after, after the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. See, it wasn't at the same time. It's after. That's logical. It's just a participle of time there. After the demon was cast out, then the man could speak. Now, notice it doesn't say after the demon was exorcised. That word, I'm just emphasizing this, that word exorcism is never used of what Jesus did or what the disciples did. That word is only used of pagan practices, not the practices of Jesus or the disciples. They cast out demons. So when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitude, so obviously Jesus is doing this in front of a large crowd, the multitudes marvel, saying it was never seen like this in Israel. Now, this is almost a snapshot preview of coming attractions because in chapter 12, Jesus is going to cast a demon out of a man who is deaf and dumb, deaf and mute, and the Pharisees there are going to make a public pronouncement. Here it's private, but there they will make a public pronouncement that he is casting out the demon by the power of Satan. This is the first time this idea occurs to them and is stated in the text in verse 34. The people are saying nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. They get it. But the Pharisees don't because they don't want Jesus to be the Messiah because he doesn't fit their idea of a Messiah. And they said he casts out demons by the rulers of the demons. So we're seeing the opposition to Jesus mount. Now, as a result of this, what we're learning is that the Pharisees are not on board with Jesus' mission to bring in the kingdom. And so if the Pharisees, if the religious leaders of Israel have failed, then who's going to carry out the work of the kingdom? And so the, the summary episode is important for addressing that issue and part of the transition to the next chapter. We're told by Matthew, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Hadn't gone to the cross yet. It's not the gospel of the cross. It's the gospel of the kingdom, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He goes about their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. This is a summary statement that is parallel to Matthew 4.23. The only difference is in, in that passage it talks about the fact that he went about Galilee teaching and pre- teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he- healing all those who were sick and diseased that were brought to him. So it's a, that, that introduced it back in Matthew uh, Matthew 4.23, and this is like the book, and it's an inclusio. It wraps up these two sections, chapter 4, 5, and 6, with the Sermon on the Mount, tells us the words of Jesus, chapters 8 and 9, the works of Jesus, and so that's a summary unit, and so we're coming to the end of that unit, and Matthew makes a point. After going through all these miracles and those two previous discipleship episodes, he brings us to a conclusion that doesn't have to do so much with the miracles, but it does have to do with the lack of workers. And that's why Jesus needs disciples. So he says in conclusion, Jesus looks at the disciples and he, uh, he looks at the people in verse 36, and he's moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. That's a common uh, depiction of the 
failure of the leaders in Israel in in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the prophets is that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. And they're, they're without a shepherd because the religious leaders are in failure. And so Jesus looks at them and tells the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Why? Because the ones that had been hired, so to speak, have left. They're, they're all in rejection of the truth. So he says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Who are the laborers? The laborers are those who are willing to take up the challenge to be a disciple. That is why Matthew has interspersed among these miracles these discipleship stories. Turn back with me briefly to Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. We have the first example. Jesus, we're told in Matthew 8, 16, is going about casting out demons and healing the sick, that it might be fulfilled what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 4, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And then Jesus looks at the multitude around him, looks at the crowd, and commanded his disciples to go to the other side of the lake. And when we go to the other side of the lake, that's primarily a Gentile area. And so a scribe comes up who's been following Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And he's over, overly enthused. He's, he's operating on emotion. He's never seen miracles like this. I want to follow this guy. Scribes are rarely talked about in a positive sense in Matthew. And Jesus says to him, Well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, some people have taken that to mean he, he just camped out all the time. But he had a house. We're told he lived in a house in Capernaum. What he's talking about is he has he doesn't have a permanent dwelling place, and if you're going to follow him, you have to be willing to leave all the comforts of home behind and go wherever the Lord directs you. And so what we have is this first example is an over-enthusiastic scribe who doesn't really want to follow, follow uh, Jesus, but he thinks he does. So Jesus is pointing out that there's a cost. The second example, this is the under-enthused disciple. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Now, this is really a poorly understood uh, example. It's very brief. And Jesus says to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What's that all about? Well, we have to understand something. What, what's he asking for here? He's really trying to procrastinate involvement with Jesus. That's clear. He wants to go bury the dead. But what we have in that we have to understand in terms of Jewish decision, Jewish burial customs, is that when somebody died, they needed to go into the ground very, very quickly, and so they were usually buried uh, within 24 hours. They still are. Jews do not believe in embalming. And so they would be buried. This is a picture of a burial cave. And these boxes are not what they would originally be buried in, but their bodies would be laid up on a shelf, something like this rock shelf here. It would be wrapped up in various spices, and it would be left for a year to decompose until all of the flesh was gone and all that was left were bones. So burial would go pretty quick. So when the this disciple says, let me go first and bury my father, he wouldn't even be there if his father had just died. It's a very quick procedure. He, he's not talking about that first burial. 
What happens after the immediate burial is they sit shiva for, for a week. And that's uh, the, the Hebrew term for, for mourning. And so there's a seven-day period of mourning. And this seven-day period of, of mourning is then uh, followed by a, a uh, 30-day less intense period of mourning called the shloshim. And the, really the full mourning goes on for a whole year until... Uh, that when the year's up, then they go in and they collect just the bones and they, the bones will compress down and they put the bones into these burial boxes, which are called ossuaries. And here is a picture of the ossuary that is in the uh, Israel Museum that has on it the indications and the terms that this is Caiaphas. This was the burial box for the Caiaphas, who was the high priest, at the time of Jesus. And so some of them were quite ornate with quite a few carvings on them like this particular one. And so what this guy is probably asking is not that I just want to go home and bury my dad and I'll be back tomorrow. What he is saying is I need to be gone for the next 11 months. I've got to carry out the full full procedure, the full morning time, all the way to the time when we... Uh, put him into the ossuary. He's basically procrastinating. He really he wants to follow Jesus, but when he's counting the cost, he's saying, ah, that's too much for me. Why don't I just come back later? And so what we see here is in these first two examples is that Matthew is showing us that a disciple should not make an irrational, emotional decision to let you go follow Jesus because look at all these wonderful things. But a disciple should also count the cost because it's serious. It's serious. And so we need to be willing to take, uh, be willing to make this decision, follow him, whatever the challenges will be, whatever the cost will be. And there's still a need. And that need is related to the last verse of chapter nine. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And that is still true. This is spoken in a particular context in terms of Jesus' ministry at the beginning, but it's, it's in Matthew's gospel, it's expanded into the great commission that comes at the end of the gospel that we are to go into the whole world and make disciples. And we make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which relates to evangelism, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, which is the instructional mandate for the local church. And that's what we're about. And what individual Christians should be about is responding to that challenge to say, yes, I want to be counted as a student of the Word of God, as a disciple who will be trained to go out and in turn replicate myself through baptism and through teaching others. This is what Jeff is doing with DM2 and that kind of a ministry, getting involved beyond just coming to church and filling up a doctrinal notebook and making sure you know what the Bible says, but implementing it in a variety of different ways in whatever situation God has put you in where that is your ministry, not just what's here in the local church, but out in the community around us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to reflect upon your grace and your goodness, to be reminded that Jesus is indeed the the second person of the Trinity, Almighty God, who came in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins, that he came to offer the kingdom and it was rejected and postponed. 
but that we today in the church age are looking forward to its coming when he returns, and we are participating in the preparation of that by telling others about Jesus Christ, communicating the gospel, learning your word, growing to maturity in preparation for our future role to rule and reign with you in the coming kingdom. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and by trusting in him and him alone, that you have forgiveness of sins, the slate is wiped clean, you have eternal life that can never be taken away from you, and you enter into the family of God, which can never be changed. So this is all that's required is simply to trust in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today. In Christ's name, amen.